I'm going to continue this morning in the series I have been in. It's the Identity and Inheritance series. And I'm going to be ministering this morning for a few minutes through a message I'm calling, His Seed Remaineth. And what I want us to see through the message today is this. We have been encapsulated in a covenant that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's the good news of the gospel, folks. There are dozens of Bible verses that affirm that God is eternal. That means for him, he has no beginning and he has no end. (laughs) Everything with the exception of God has a beginning. Now, there are those that would like to argue that point with you, but I'm just not interested in such a debate. It's foolishness. Every full-grown dog was once a puppy. Every cat was at one time a kitten. Every butterfly was at one time a caterpillar. Every man was once a baby. And every tree began its upward ascent, its upward journey through a dormant seed. That's an aristocratic way of saying the seed was asleep. It was just lying dormant. I have a question for you. What is the one element that you have to introduce the seed to in order for the seed to germinate? Think about that for a moment. What is the one element? You say, I know, I know, I know. It's dirt. No, no, it's not dirt. Uh Uh-uh. You see, you can actually grow plants with not an ounce of dirt. It's called hydroponics. So it's not dirt. You say, I know what it is. It's sunlight. A seed has to have sunlight to grow. No, no, no. Seeds are buried underground. There's no sunlight, no direct sunlight hitting them. You introduce a seed to water and it will germinate. But a seed without water will remain a seed. The seed's potential is encapsulated until the helper arrives. What is the helper? Water. The helper for seed is water. Now, in the same manner, humanity was encapsulated in sin. That is, until the helper arrived. What was the helper? The helper was the blood of Jesus. The scriptures tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins and no germination that leadeth to life. The Jews were encapsulated at one time by the law for 1,500 years. That is, until Jesus died. After Jesus died, the Helper came. The Helper was the Holy Spirit. When Jesus died, he released the Jews from the law. He released them from the Old Covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scripture We are no longer under law, but we are under grace. He is the fulfillment of that. It was his death, burial, and resurrection that gave us the ability to even be able to say we are no longer under law, but under grace. Now, the word encapsulate comes from the Latin word capsa. Can you hear that? Encapsulate. What does capsa mean? It means box or container encapsulate. And so prior to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, 
Humanity was in more than just a pickle. Humanity was in a container. Humanity was in a box. Humanity was in a casket without a lid. Humanity was encapsulated in the cockpit of sin, but Jesus would become the way out of our merciless container and the way into resurrection life, which I'm so thankful for. One of the most famous stories in the Bible is the story of Lazarus. It's a story that is filled with drama and suspense, twisted emotions and unbelief. It flips the script of death and mourning into life and celebration as it morphs its way through the story. Before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he spoke the following words into Lazarus's sister Martha's heart. He said these words in John chapter 11, verse 25 and verse 26. Jesus said to her, come home. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he looked at Martha and he just simply said, do you believe this? Because that's what the currency for the new covenant. Do you believe that? What did Jesus mean when he said, the one who believes in me will live even though they die? What does that exactly mean, Jesus? How can a man live when he is dead? Because his seed remaineth. Because the seed is still alive on the inside of you. So I've got a question. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he gave life to a lifeless Lazarus, then what kind of life do you suppose Lazarus received? Come on, not that hard, is it? He received resurrection life. Lazarus received eternal life. It was bigger than just physical stuff. I'm talking about the life whereby his seed from that point on remaineth. Prior to Jesus arriving at Bethany, Lazarus was encapsulated in a tomb, a box, a merciless container, a casket without a lid. Lazarus represented all of humanity. He was you and me long before we were around. He represented all of humanity, dead in our sins, foul-smelling, trapped behind the stone, and hidden in a dark place. But, but when Jesus, the darling of heaven and the light of the world, came strolling by, he commanded those things which had bound Lazarus to be removed. Can you see it, friends? Does your mind allow you to go there? Can you play that movie in your mind? Jesus came strolling through Bethany, and he commanded those things which had bound Lazarus to be removed. I'm talking about the stone today, friends. I'm talking about the stench. I'm talking about the separation. I'm talking about the grave clothes. Jesus commanded all of those things to be gone. The stone represented the law, and the grave clothes represented the old nature, and both were rolled away, friends. Both have been removed from all of those who have been resurrected in Christ's righteousness. Today, I want you to know we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. 
The scriptures tell us that old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have been loosed from the cockpit of sin, friends. We have taken off the grave clothes of condemnation. We have been rescued from the merciless container, the box that at one time separated us from God. We have been set free from the drama and suspense, the twisted emotions and the unbelief so that we can be at rest. The script has been flipped. You see, our names, which at one time were written on a temporary tomb, are now written in the eternal Lamb's Book of Life. Isn't that great? You see, I don't care how old a tombstone is, give it enough time, the names will erase. When the name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, there's nothing in the world that can blot that out. We possess eternal life, and we no longer identify with dead man behind a stone. The stone has been rolled away, and guess what? Our new identity has emerged. I pray that someday that the church would catch up with that, really. The old man has died. The new man has emerged. Our new identity emerges through faith. Come on. Through faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through faith, we possess a new birth. We possess a living hope and an inheritance in heaven. How did we go from the graveyard? How did we go from the grave clothes? How did we go from the grave stones into an identity and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade? Nobody here has that much talent, friends. Nobody here has that much gifting. It has to be a gift from God. We moved away from all that because the Father has put the seed, capital S, the seed in our hearts his seed remaineth. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we find these words. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come on. In His great mercy. God is full of mercy. In His great mercy. Think larger. Great mercy. Not intermittent mercy, not casual mercy, great mercy. Peter couldn't find the right adjective to even describe his mercy. That's the best he could come up with. Behind that word great is like this word that means mega. Mega mercy, great mercy. He says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth, come on, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance, there it is, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's your inheritance. That's your identity. And inside that, you can never perish. You can never spoil. You can never fade. Why? Because his seed remaineth. And then Peter said, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And I've said it many times. If it was here, we'd probably tear it up. We'd probably wreck it somehow. But it's kept in heaven. It cannot be destroyed. He said, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you 
Then he says, who through faith? Come on, there's no comma plus, comma plus, comma plus. No, he says through faith. Come on. Through faith, he says, are shielded. Come on. Now, do you think anything in the world can penetrate God's shield? Can get around God's shield? Can come in the back door? Can break through the firewall of God's shield? And he's saying here, you who through faith are shielded by God's power, not your power, God's power. And all the power belongs to him. God is referred to as omnipotent. That means all-powerful. Shielded by God's power, he says, until the coming of the next sin. No, I'm, no, he didn't say that. He said, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Isn't God good? Look at these promises that we have in the Word. They're awesome. I have a question for you. In the face of such truth, what becomes our confession? What is your confession in the face of that kind of truth? Well, faith has come. It's already here. I'm not waiting for faith. I have all the faith I need. He's measured to me the measure of faith. I've got all the faith I need. Faith has come already. We can say adios to the old container. We can say good riddance to the old box. We can say so long to stone, stench, and separation. We can say goodbye to grave clothes of condemnation. Why? Because we have been encapsulated in a covenant into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's the covenant whereby his seed, come on, remaineth. Isn't that awesome? In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, we find some words from the Apostle Paul. I love the Apostle Paul. I love his book of Galatians, one of my absolute favorite. I never tire, of, especially of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul said, before the coming of this faith, so what he's alluding to here is it's already here. I've already made that point. Faith is here. Faith is the currency that we operate by. He said, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. We were held in a container. We were in a tomb of our own sin. He said, we were held in custody under the law. The law is the jailer. It is the one that put us in custody at one time. He said, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Now, let me ask you a question. Whose faith resurrected Lazarus from the dead? It wasn't Mary's. It wasn't Martha's. It wasn't even the group of mourners. And it certainly wasn't Lazarus's faith. Lazarus was dead. It was Jesus's faith that resurrected Lazarus from the dead. The same faith that is attached to his promise, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. That same faith that is attached to that promise. Come on, you take a hold of that promise. The one who believes in me. Isn't that simple? The plan of salvation is so simple that we miss it sometimes. Jesus said, the one who believes in me, that's it, will live even though they die. 
it says the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. I love this. You know why I love this so much? Because it takes my muscle, my intellect, it takes it all out of the way. It's by faith that I'm justified. By faith alone. He says it there. He says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified. That means declared innocent, made right, declared righteous by faith. Now that faith has come, look at these words. We are no longer under a guardian. Friends, the gravedigger has been dismissed. Get that in your hearts this morning. We are no longer under the custodian. We're no longer under the guardian. We're no longer under the groundskeeper, if you will, of the law. In Christ Jesus, there is only resurrection life. Come on, there's resurrection life. He said there, he said, the one who believes in me will live. That's resurrection life. In the twinkling of an eye, the believer passes from life to even more life. Only the shell remains. But because his seed remaineth in us, we pass from life to more life. In the twinkling of an eye, we go from life as we know it to even more abundant life. I'm no hurry to get there, but if it happens, praise God. I'll be thinking about all of you, I'm sure. So we go from life to even more life. How? Jesus said it's through faith. It's the very currency. It's the operating system, if you will, of the new covenant. It's faith, friends. And that's one of the things the churches are not able to let go of. And then uh, he said these words. He said, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Please make note, there's nothing else there. It's through faith that we become a child of God. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, <laughs> I, I know that it's the season in Wisconsin for multiple layers of clothing, but I can assure you that at the moment of salvation, we didn't put Christ over our grave clothes, okay? Our grave clothes were removed. Isn't that what Jesus told Lazarus' friends? He said, take away the grave clothes. God is not slipping righteousness over our grave clothes. The grave clothes have been taken away. They were removed. In Christ, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Through faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross, we possess a new birth into a living hope and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. How does this miracle happen? Through the seed. The miracle is in the seed, friends. And the seed lives on the inside of us. We're a walking miracle. And so we have to open up our hearts and our minds to think broader and larger and wider and deeper and higher than we've ever thought in our life because this seed is on the inside of us and it has all this potential. 
of blossoming into something so beautiful and being such a helper to you. Next scripture. And then he says this. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then he says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And he spills over into Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. We find these words. The Apostle Paul says, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were immature. We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, okay, the time had arrived, God sent his son, born of a woman. Jesus was born under the law. And then it says, to redeem those under the law. Come on. Jesus came to redeem those that were born under the law. Do you know what redeem means? It means to purchase out of slavery. To redeem means to buy out of slavery. It literally means to regain possession of. In other words, it was once mine. Something was once mine. It went away. I lost it for a little while. But now I've paid the ransom for it. And I bought it back out of slavery. And so Jesus came to redeem those under the law that they might receive adoption to sonship. In other words, he was buying us back out of the law, friends and bringing us into the new covenant of grace, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, I love this word, Abba, Father. It means Papa. A term of endearment. It means Daddy. Up close and personal with the Father. He says, We have the ability, like the Spirit, to call him Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Come on. An heir to a fortune. An heir to a palace that has never been seen. An heir to a place where there's colors that we have never seen before. The Bible says the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, and the mind cannot even begin to concoct, conceive of the place that he's prepared for those that love him. So following Jesus' death on the cross, do you know what happened? Do you remember the story? A Roman soldier took his spear and he thrust it into Jesus' side. Jesus is already hanging lifeless on the cross. He thrusts the spear into Jesus' side. What were the two liquids that flowed from Jesus, our Savior's side? That's right. Water and blood. The Scriptures call it living water, and the Scriptures call it precious blood. We were washed in a living water, and we were cleansed in His precious blood. It's a water that never runs dry. It's a 
blood that never coagulates. Jesus' living water and precious blood are given to every believer. It's given to roll away the stone, to free us from our containers, to loose us from our box of belittle. What grace I've noticed does is it changes your language. All that belittling that you used to do over yourself or that belittling that you would do over other people because you thought you were more spiritual, you thought you were more religious. This grace message, this gospel of grace literally frees us from the box of belittle and it removes our grave clothes of condemnation where we're not constantly walking in fear and condemnation. Moreover, Jesus' living water and precious blood are dispensed to germinate eternal life on the inside of us. Do you see that? And to supply the seed with the nourishment that remaineth in every single person that is born of God. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, we find these words. And this is where the inspiration for this message came from as I was meditating on this particular scripture. It says, whoever is born of God does not commit sin. Look at these words for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, this Bible verse has a way of troubling many believers' hearts. Can you guess which part of the verse they don't like? (laughs) It's the words, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. You see, Because every believer knows that they continue to sin from time to time, it makes some of them question whether or not they're born of God. Do you see the road you can go down very easily with this one here? If as believers we commit sin, then doesn't it mean that we are not born of God? Isn't that what the Scripture is saying? That's what it appears to say. No, not at all. You see, the second part of 1 John 3, verse 9, tells us emphatically that his seed remaineth. Do you see that? His seed remaineth. Which means our identity and our inheritance are not forfeited through the practice of sin, but rather our identity and inheritance are fortified with the presence of the seed. I'm going to go with what the scriptures say there, and it simply says, his seed remaineth even when we sin. Biblical scholars agree that the word commit is just a poor translation. In fact, the majority of translations don't even use the word commit. They use the word do or does. The verse before that says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So it starts off with that same motif, He that committeth sin is of the devil. If a Christian believes that he or she is of the devil because they've committed sin, then their ideology will introduce them to bothersome thoughts like this. How many sins do I have to commit? What category, what type of sin is unforgivable? Which sin pushes me over the edge? Which sin takes me to the point of no return? How many times do I have to fall? This kind of thinking is fear-based rather than faith-based. And thinking like this, friends, is nothing short 
of a crash dummy in an automobile safety test. You know what it does? It has a way of tossing our mind and our emotions around until they are absolutely fragmented. There are people that just drive themselves berserk, drive themselves crazy, even believers, because they look at scriptures and they don't understand the finished work of the cross. The believer will find no rest until he or she comes into the revelation, listen to me carefully, that God is at peace with them. Even if they struggle in a particular sin, God is at peace with you. Your issues don't disturb God's peace with you, friends. He's at peace with you. He loves you. Remember, he gave us the helper. He gave us someone that would germinate everything we touch with goodness and grace. But it starts in our belief system. In Genesis chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, we find these words. It says, Then Noah sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. Noah reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. And then it says, He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and then sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him. The dove did not come back. Friends, the dove has landed with its olive branch in its beak. And the olive branch speaks of peace. The olive branch speaks of friendship. God has made peace and friendship with humanity. How? Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The scriptures say, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also stand in his grace. We are friends of God. We are family of God. I love Noah because his name translates as rest. And the ark is a type and shadow of Christ. In other words, we find rest in Christ. That's where our rest is found. The door in the side of the ark was a type and shadow of Jesus' side that was opened with the spear as he hung on the cross. The dove is a symbol of both the Holy Spirit and peace. He represents both. Did you happen to notice that once the dove found a place to rest, it brought back a peace treaty? In the same manner, the Holy Spirit has found a place to rest inside the believer simply by putting our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, like a dove, finds a place, a resting place. There's no need to return to the ark. He has found a resting place. There's nothing we can do to make the Holy Spirit leave us and return to the ark. Why? Because his seed remaineth. The Holy Spirit is the seed, friends. 
The Holy Spirit has brought us the Father's peace. Jesus said, peace I give unto you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world giveth, give I unto thee. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I've given you my peace. I've given you my dove. I've given you the sweet Holy Spirit. He has found a resting place. Rest in his rest. Rest in his peace. It's beautiful. The olive branch speaks of peace, and Jesus' cross speaks of a better covenant. Our sins, they may have a way of disturbing our peace, but they don't disturb the peace that God has with us. It is small sin. It is big God. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you with the areas that you struggle Ask him to help you. He's there to be your helper. He's there to bring peace in every single thing that we have. Don't put things in a box. Don't put things in a container. He's there to help us. Hear the words that God spoke when the dove, the Holy Spirit, landed on Jesus after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Hear these words, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and I have it for you in the New Life version, okay? Jesus came from Galilee. He went to John at the Jordan River to be baptized by him. John tried to stop him. He said, hey, (laughs) I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus said to him, let it be done now. We should do what is right. And then John consented. John agreed, you're right. And then it says, John baptized Jesus. And then it says, when Jesus came up out of the water, oh, the Father's been waiting, friends. Oh, he's been waiting. When Jesus came up out of the water, the scriptures say, the heavens, all of them open. The lower heaven, the middle heaven, the heaven where God abides, all the heavens opened. It says, the heavens open. He saw the Spirit of God coming down and resting on Jesus like a dove. Look at these words. A voice was heard from heaven. It said, I love this part, this is my much loved son. This is my much loved. Get those words in your heart this morning. You are much loved. God said, this is my much loved son. He said, I am very happy with him. He can't do anything wrong in my eyes. And if he does, he's still my son. This is my much loved. This is my beloved, one version says. This is my much loved son. I love that he says, oh, I'm so happy with him. Friends, we can get a little messy at times. I get it, okay? There are going to be times when we attempt to crawl back into our old containers, old mindsets, our former ways of doing things. As it was with Mary, Martha, and the mourners, we are occasionally going to walk in unbelief. You're not being real if you say, that's not me. That's going to happen from time to time. It's not where we exist. It's not where we live. It's not where we spend most of our time. But it's going to happen once in a while. We're going to walk in a little unbelief like everybody else did. But I've come by today to remind us that we are much-loved sons. And the Father is very, very happy with us. 
He's happy with us. He's smiling at us. He's celebrating us. He's encouraging us. I think he pulls back the curtains of heaven from time to time, and he says, angels, everybody gather around. Look at my son. Look at my daughter. Much love, sons. He's happy with us. He has loosed us from the grave clothes of condemnation. He has removed us from the cockpit of sin and encapsulated us in resurrection life. We're held in a capsule of resurrection life. It's a spacious capsule. That's where we're at. Why? So that we can never perish, spoil, or fade. He has rolled away the stone. He has rolled away the stench. He has rolled away the separation. There is nothing we can do, friends. Get this in your heart this morning. Nothing we can do to chase the dove away. He abides. Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to come and make his abode in you. He's going to come and live with you. He's going to come and dwell in you forever. The Holy Spirit, the seed of God, lives on the inside of us. The Holy Spirit has brought to us the olive branch of peace and friendship with the Father. Isn't it? What a gift. Another translation, maybe even a better translation of 1 John 3, 9, is found in the Young's literal translation. In the Young's literal translation, 1 John 3, 9 reads like this. It says, everyone who hath been begotten of God, sin he doth not, because his seed in him doth remain. I love these next words. And he is not able to sin. Because of God, he hath been begotten. (laughs) Come on. Oh, praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Boy, oh boy, if this was the last message I could ever stand and preach and the last scripture I could ever put in your heart, I want to say that right there. Because the seed remains, he is not able to sin. Now, that messes with our mind. Talking to us here, he said he's not able to sin. Why? He said because of God he has been begotten. I am really refreshed as I fixate on the words, and he is not able to sin. How can that be? What did you mean, John, when you wrote the words, he is not able to sin? Surely I can sin if I choose to. Yes. Against man. Against God? No. Why? Because God is love, and love keeps no record of wrong. Sin is wrong, isn't it? I think we'd all agree that sin is wrong. And God is love. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that God, love, keeps no record of wrongs. Now, that doesn't make me want to sin more, and hopefully it doesn't make you want to sin more, but just understand what that scripture is saying. He is not able to sin because God is not counting our sins against us. What freedom, what liberty we find with a truth like that. Because God has taken away our sins. What sins did he take away? The past sins, the present sins, and the future sins. I am not able to sin against God because I have been washed with living water and cleansed by precious blood. I'm not able to sin against the Father because his seed remaineth. Friends, 
His seed is on the inside of me. Imagine with me for a moment that I have a big field behind my house. And I decide to plant corn in that field. And I go through all the corn planting that I need to get done. The seed is in the ground. And then I take a sign. And I stake the sign in right next to my cornfield. And that sign reads Cabbage Patch. Okay, you got that so far? Cabbage Patch, you got corn in the ground. Let me ask you a question. What will grow in the field? Come on, help me out. Any farmers in here? <laughs> I love it. Corn. That's right. <laughs> it would be corn. But wait a minute now. The sign reads cabbage. It will be corn. The label on my sign does not alter the seed. <laughs> the label on my sign does not alter the seed. And the labels that we put on ourselves, the label that the enemy puts on us, the label that the world puts on us, and the label that even religion puts on us does not alter the truth that for those who are born of God, we possess resurrection life, and because his seed remaineth, we are not able to sin. What does it say? Everyone who hath been begotten of God, sin he doth not, because his seed in him doth remain, and he is not able to sin. Because of God he hath been begotten. Friends, I didn't write these words. If I wrote these words, you could argue with me, but they are the Young's literal translation. Out of the original Greek is where it was translated. Satan now understands that there is nothing he can do to reverse a believer's inheritance. And that bugs him. That bothers him. He never goes to sleep. He walks the halls at night going, what can I do? What can I do? But he can mess with the believer's identity. He can mess with the way the believer sees their identity. If he can get believers to question their identity, then in their own minds, they will distance themselves from the worthiness of their inheritance. They won't feel worthy of an inheritance if he can mess with your mind. Friends, not uh, understanding the true gospel, the finished work of grace, again, is like a crash dummy behind the wheel. It has a way of leaving the believer's emotions in a mangled wreck. We see another example of the removing of the grave clothes through the narrative we call the prodigal son. Here's what prodigal translates as. Uncontrolled, wasteful, and reckless. That is what he lived out for a while. But prodigal is also defined as extravagant. He's an extravagant son. He just happened to go the wrong way. I don't mind extravagant if you're going the right way. You can be extravagantly wealthy. You can be extravagantly generous. So extravagant isn't a bad word, but prodigal means extravagant. What Jesus wanted us to see through this parable was not the reckless life that the prodigal son had lived, but rather the extravagant love of his father. One of the reasons that believers struggle to believe that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, is because to them it seems uncontrolled, wasteful, and reckless 
of the Father to be so good to somebody, to show so much grace to someone who doesn't deserve it. (laughs) So the Father looks like the prodigal. He looks wasteful. He looks uncontrolled. He looks reckless. Friends, that is the essence of grace. It's uncontrolled, if you will. It's lavished. It's generous. It's extravagant. The Father is so extravagant with forgiveness that it almost appears as though He is uncontrolled, out of touch, wasteful, and reckless. But none of that is true. In Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24, we see the story of the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set out for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. (laughs) Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. In the quiet hours of this morning, I sat in almost total darkness. And as I was thinking about this narrative, I said, Father, can I see for a moment through the eyes of the prodigal? What did that look like coming home? What did he see? What did that look like? And as I was meditating, for whatever reasons, the song, Green, Green, Grass of Home, fell into my heart. And as I thought about the melody of that song and some of the words in the chorus, I couldn't help but change them up a little bit. 
And this is what I saw through the eyes of the prodigal. Down the lane I look, and there runs Daddy, full of love, and he's not mad at me. It's good to touch the green, green grass of home. Yes, they'll all come to meet me, arms reaching, smiling sweetly. It's good to touch the green, green grass of home. That's what I saw through the prodigal's eye. Down the lane! I look and there runs Daddy! A boy that had never seen his daddy run a day in his life, but Daddy's running to me! Full of love! And not mad at me. Oh, it's good to be home. The grass seems greener for some reason. The ground feels softer for some reason. This is the most iconic story I believe that Jesus ever told. And as I was meditating on that again, even this morning, I thought, what are some of the takeaways from this parable? The prodigal son had walked away from the goodness of his father, but the goodness of his father had not walked away from him. In fact, when the son returned home, the goodness of the father was present to meet, greet, and treat him as a son. Did the son come home with the right mindset? Not at all. Remember, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. No, not the right mindset. Do believers always possess the right mindset? No, not at all. The son had come home with a servant mentality. He had returned home with a self-imposed identity that was no longer worthy to be called a son. You see, the harlots... And the hangovers and the hurling of slop had changed him, but it had not changed his father's perception of him. He was still his father's son. The scriptures tell us that the prodigal's father was filled with compassion for his son. And when he saw him, the scriptures say he ran to him. You see, compassion is deeper and fuller, and richer, and sweeter, and truer than feelings. Compassion comes from deep within the man's bowels. Feelings are typically on the surface. They're superficial. The son had returned home physically starving to death. Those were his own words. I'm starving to death. He came home starving to death, but the father was compelled to relieve his son's emotional suffering first. He had saved the fattened calf until last. The robe, the ring, and the shoes would precede the meal. The first issues that the father dealt with were to restore his son's identity. Don't you see that in these scriptures, in this narrative? It was to restore his son's identity and to remind his son that his inheritance had not been exhausted. 
there's more, son. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. The father was not concerned that his son may have been contaminated with the effects of riotous living. No request for a shower, no hand sanitizer, no quarantine. The scriptures tell us that his father, I love this part, his father threw his arms around his son and kissed him, which literally means his father fell into his son's embrace. It means to kiss much. It means to kiss again and again and again and again and again. It means to kiss tenderly. You see, in the quietness of that embrace, the son had discovered that he was much loved and that his father was pleased with him. His daddy was happy with him. The father's actions had conveyed in the deepest way that he was at peace and in a state of friendship with his son. Behind our English word kiss is that Greek word katafaleo, which means intensified fondness. That's what was being displayed through the kiss, the way the father kissed the son. Intensified fondness! Probably the way I grabbed my kids. I'm intense. I have intense fondness for my kids, my grandkids. I grab them. I hug them. I do the same thing with my dog. I, everything I get, in, I got it. I'm intensely fond of my stuff, my people, okay? This is the way the father was. The son was no longer behind the stone. He had been loosed from the merciless container of condemnation and the box of belittle. He had been encapsulated once again, but this time he had been encapsulated in his father's embrace. I got you, son. I've got you in my embrace. I've encapsulated you. As it was with Lazarus and any dormant seed, they were both asleep. And so it was with the prodigal son. Because of the hard life he had chosen for a time, the faith he once had in his father's goodness and grace had fallen asleep. That's all. And Jesus, as he told those about Lazarus, and they said he's dead, he said, no, he's just sleeping. I can wake him up. The son's dormant seat of faith had been awakened only after it had been germinated with the tears and kisses of his daddy. The first thing the prodigal father ordered was the best robe. Do you know what the best robe was? It was daddy's robe. It was the robe that didn't perish, spoil or fade. It was the robe with no stains on it. The scriptures make no mention of whether or not the son took off his pig slop grave clothes before he put on daddy's robe, but whether he did or he did not, we can deduce that the purpose of the father's robe was not simply to make his son look good for the party where they would meet up with the fattened calf. 
the robe symbolized righteousness. It communicated a message to his son that he was much loved and that his father was well pleased with him. The robe served to remind the son that his righteousness, his identity, and his inheritance had never been lost. Why? Because our eternal God, the God who has no beginning, has supplied us with a better covenant, the covenant by which his seed remaineth. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Believers have been encapsulated in a covenant that protects us in life as well as in death. We are the seed of Abraham. We are the seed of Christ germinated by the living water and the precious blood that flowed from Jesus' side. Through the blood of Jesus, we have been redeemed. That means God has regained possession of his children. We have been loosed from the container of condemnation and emancipated from the box of belittle. Believers have been set free from the demands of the law and the cockpit of sin has given way to resurrection, life, and power. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. In Christ, there is no stone. In Christ, there is no stench. In Christ, there is no sin. In Christ, there is no shadow. In Christ, there is no separation. The gravestone and the grave clothes have been removed. They're gone. The Father has slipped the eternal ring of oneness around our hearts. He's slipped the eternal robe of righteousness over our shoulders, over his sons and daughters. He has declared that we are his much-loved sons in whom he is very happy with. Our new identity and our inheritance are never diminished or exhausted by our performance. We are held together by the seed that remains. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have been given a new birth into a living hope and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Do you see why I always get so happy? I think about truths like these. This inheritance is kept in heaven for us and through faith alone is shielded by God's power. In closing, may I remind us once again about the extravagant love that flow from the heart of the prodigal's father. A love that even the church cannot comprehend. I'm talking about a love and a compassion that was expressed through hugs and acceptance, through forgiveness and tender kisses. Jesus told the story because he wanted us to see that his father dispenses the same extravagant love the same outrageous generosity, and the same unconditional graces. When Jesus told that story, he was basically saying, Hey, I want to show you what my daddy looks like coming up the lane. I've seen him, I know. Friends, we are encapsulated, come on, in the Father's embrace. 
Let him put his arms around you. Let him hold you. Let him radiate his goodness and grace. He lavishes his affection over us. Why? Because we are his. We are no longer servants. We are sons. We are no longer dead, but rather alive. We are no longer dirty and distanced. We are clean and close. We have been purchased out of the slavery of the old covenant, and by grace through faith we live, we dwell, we remain in a better covenant, a covenant that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. What kind of covenant am I talking about? I'm talking about a covenant by which his seed remaineth. Amen. Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. What a picture we have through the prodigal son of a daddy that never forsook his son, never gave up on his son, was always there watching for his son. A father that made the first move to run to his son because you could see beyond the stuff on the surface. You could see deep into the heart looking through the prodigal's eyes. What did he see again? Down the lane, there runs daddy, full of love and not mad at me. It's good to touch the green, green grass of home. Father, the scriptures tell us you make us to lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside the still waters. Why? Because the shepherd is present. I thank you, Father, that you never turn your back on us. The stench has been rolled away. Our sin has been rolled away. The separation is gone. We are not living in any box or compartment or container. We are living in Christ, and Christ is living in us. And Father, I thank you for the sweet Holy Spirit. You gave him to us as the seed. You planted him inside of us so that he could be with us. He could encourage us. He could be our helper. He could help us to germinate love, germinate grace, germinate compassion and mercy for someone else. So Father, thank you right now that I just give permission for the Holy Spirit to germinate any dormant seed, any seed that has not been already germinated by your great, your great love for us your great mercy for us. Father, we are so blessed. And I thank you, Father, that the scriptures say we are much loved. You are so happy with us. Thank you, Father, for the seed that remains. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833 632 1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. 
The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.